Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day. And a warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to all of our visitors and those of you who are with us for your first time. Uh, you're very welcome. We look forward to meeting you and getting to know you a bit better. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to James chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4, and we'll be considering verses 13 through 16, a text that we've considered before at the beginning of a new year. And one thing I, while you're turning there, let me mention, I forgot to uh, mention this to Ken. Uh, this is the first week of the new year, and so our catechism has started over. So if you fell off the wagon a bit on keeping up with catechism with your children, there's probably no better week than this week to start over and start fresh with them as it begins again at question one. And those are in our, our bulletin, but take that home and uh, do encourage you to uh, pick that up again with your children. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Let us hear the Word of God. James 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Amen. Let's pray that God would add His blessing to the preaching of His Word. Let's unite our hearts and pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You as we enter upon a new year. As we do so, Father, we reflect upon the last year and Your manifold blessings to your people, how many trials you were faithful to bring your people through, how many lessons of humility you've taught us, how your afflictions and your discipline as a loving Father has shaped and formed our people here at Bethany. We give you thanks, Father. Every good gift that we have comes down from the Father of lights from above, that we receive nothing except that it is given to us from heaven. Father, we thank You that You have continued to sustain our life, that You have given us life and breath and everything, and that it is in You that we live and move and have our being. We thank You that You have sustained our faith spiritually, that though our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour Your people, Though He has come against us with temptation, with doubt, with accusation, Father, You, through Your Son, by Your Spirit, by the instrumentality of Your Word, have kept our faith, the, fanned, the fire of our faith, fanned. We thank You, Father, that You are gracious to bear with Your people, that You never begin a good work in us that You do not complete. We thank You that we see tangible evidence in that over this last year. And Father, as we look to a year unknown, we pray that we would walk into it humbly. That the lessons we've learned from this last year, we would keep fresh upon our minds and our hearts for this coming year. That we would not be presumptuous. That we would not be arrogant in our boasting. But that we would do all things in dependence upon You. That we would trust in Your perfect wisdom, both for us individually and our families and our church. We pray, Father, that we would learn humility, that we would not kick against trials, that we would embrace them with faith, that we would have confidence in Your love to Your people in Your Son. Father, cause us to remember the great truths and the great promises of Your Word to Your people that all things work together for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. 
Father, draw near to us this morning as we consider this familiar passage again. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would humble us and convict us. There's not one of us who does not stand condemned of being presumptuous, of thinking that we hold our own destinies in our own hands. We pray that we would be exhorted by your word and that we would be led again to the cross of Christ, that we would be led again to your patience and your goodness towards us, that you are faithful, that you will perfect that which concerns us. Father, draw near to us, we pray. We pray for any who are here who are strangers to Christ. We pray that you would be merciful. By your Spirit, awaken them to spiritual life. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear your word, that they would flee from the wrath to come because of sin, and that they would cast themselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the pardon of their sin and for the power to live according to your law, according to your word. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. John Calvin is a a very influential figure in church history, Um, probably especially in the Reformed world. We value his life and his legacy that has served for centuries now as an encouragement to God's people, as an, an example of devotion and faithfulness. And it's funny with many of our heroes, including Calvin, if you were to talk to Calvin at that time and asked him if he had wanted to become any of those things to us, he would have responded, no. Uh, He didn't intend to become anything of what we now know of him today. Uh, He didn't even intend to become a pastor or a trainer of pastors. He certainly didn't intend to spend his life in Geneva Uh, breaking up fights on the streets in the midst of preparing for his sermons and his lectures. Calvin, in his heart of hearts, his desire was to be a quiet man and a scholar for the cause of the Reformation. Um, He honestly thought that's how he would best serve the cause of the Reformation. But God had something very different planned for Calvin. Uh, Because of his association early on with the Reformation, he was early on forced to flee from his home country of France, and he settled in Basel, Switzerland, in order to pursue his academic career, and in his mind, hopefully to remain somewhat unencumbered by people. Um, He told one man, quote, the summit of my wishes was the enjoyment of literary ease with something of a free and honorable station. That's what Calvin wanted. Well, In God's providence, Calvin makes a sneak visit back to France from which he had been banished. And upon trying to return to Switzerland, he found the country in such an upheaval because war had broken out that he was forced to take a detour which brought him through none other than Geneva. And according to him, he intended to stay no more than one night. And again, God in His providence had something very different in mind. As you probably know the story, he met a man there in Geneva named William Farrell, a very strong defender of the Reformation. And the moment Farrell heard that Calvin was in town, he sought Calvin out and he implored Calvin to help with the work of God's church there in Geneva and to ask and plead with Calvin to help build the church. And Farrell got nowhere with Calvin. Uh, Calvin responded to, to Farrell I'm a scholar. I'm not a man of affairs. He, he uh, uh, referred to his shyness as a reason for why he was unfit for the task. To which Pharrell, who was known for speaking somewhat strongly, when he saw that he was getting nowhere with Calvin, he said with prophetic power, quote, you, Calvin, are just following your own wishes. And I declare in the name of God Almighty that if you refuse to take part in the Lord's work in this church, God will curse the quiet life that you desire for your studies. And Calvin later wrote that he sunk deeply into his chair and he wrote, quote, I felt as if God from heaven had laid His mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. I was so stricken with terror that I did not continue my journey. And the rest, as you know, is history. Even a great saint like Calvin, defender of the Reformed faith, knew what it was to learn that it is God who directs our steps. He knew what it is 
to have his own plans for his future, and he knew what it was to watch God overthrow those plans. In other words, he lived James chapter 4. And I wish I could say that Calvin's presumption was a unique thing amongst Christians. But it's not. And I know that because I know my own heart, and because I know that your heart is very much similar to my heart. It is a constant temptation for God's people to begin to feel a prideful security and to trust in our own power and our own plans and to forget that it is God who has numbered our days before there was yet one of them and that God, Psalm 33, is the one who sits in the heavens and does all that He pleases upon the earth. And in fact, I think perhaps even more than Calvin, Christians who live in the day and age in which we live are perhaps even more prone to this kind of presumption because of all of the ways that we're shielded from sickness, all of the ways that we're shielded from many of the hardships that were just common to people in generations gone by, we are perhaps the most at risk of forgetting that it is the Lord who reigns. Probably all you have to do to be reminded of that is to think back upon this past year. And I'm sure either to some extent or perhaps to a large extent, the way last year went from the way you thought it would go at the beginning of last year is very different than you imagined. And many of us are in far different places today than we thought we would be. And what that should do in our hearts is it should humble us as God's people under His mighty hand as we again stand together looking into a a year unknown to us. And it should call us to submit ourselves afresh to the will of God and to trust Him in His providence for His people. Well, James gives us some warnings and exhortations for us to again let a fresh sink down into our hearts. And I'm, I'm going to break it up into two categories. What we must not say when we plan our lives in verses 13 and 14, and what we must say when planning our lives in verses 15 and 16. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to have it open. How, what we must not say when planning our lives in the first two verses, and what we must say in verses 15 and 16. So first of all, what we must not say in planning our lives, verses 13 and 14. James begins in verse 13 with these words, come now. Okay, now, he's going to administer an admonition, somewhat of a rebuke, and he does so with an entreating tone to these Christians. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a prophet. Okay, now if you glance down at verse 16, he calls that kind of statement that they are making arrogant boasting and evil. Now, that might somewhat catch us off guard and make us wonder if James is not being a bit over the top here. Because he's basically just describing what would have been very familiar and commonplace type of planning in the first century. If you were a merchant in the first century, the way you made a living was by traveling and trading. And travel requires, as we know, planning. And it requires thinking through accommodations and how long we're going to spend in this city and that city and so on. And so the question is, according to James, why would that be considered arrogant, boasting, and evil? Well, In one sense, there's nothing inherently wrong with the words these people are saying. James is not condemning here what we might call responsible planning for the future. And in fact, the Bible elsewhere condemns what we might call a failure to responsibly plan for our our future. Uh, This is not, and we need to not misunderstand James, this is not an outright condemnation regarding thinking about your career or about your living situation, or even about thinking about how you might make a profit in this life. It's it's not condemning any of those things in and of themselves. Rather, it's evil boasting, according to James, because these words are coming from a heart, or from hearts, that have forgotten their place in this world. These words are coming from hearts that have fallen into the fantasy that my destiny lies in my own power and my own hands. Listen to the common denominator of what they're saying if we were to translate it very woodenly and redundantly. 
Literally, it could say, come now, you who continuously are saying, we will go, we will spend, we will engage in business, we will get gain or make profit. In other words, their plans are very prominent in their words, but in these verses, it seems that God has seemingly vanished from their practical thinking and their practical living and planning. And one thing we need to note that should shock us a bit is the common and mundane type of things that James mentions here. Right? James doesn't go after the quote-unquote important people in life. He doesn't go after kings and presidents and condemn them for their arrogance and making their big decisions without thinking about God. But rather, he calls out the presumption of Christians carrying out their everyday menial tasks and not submitting those plans to the lordship of God. And because James goes after these what we would consider really mundane and menial things, it really broadens for us our definition of practical atheism. You you don't have to say in your heart there is no God in order to be a practical atheist. But according to James, all you have to do is plan next week or next year without reference to God in order to be a practical atheist. Because God is not someone we just look to in big moments with big decisions, but rather the duty of the Christian is every moment of every day to submit ourselves to God's providence in the big things and the small things. Now, I want to open up three ways that, from what these Christians were saying, three ways that I think we are prone to presume upon God. I'll give them to you as we go. Three ways we're prone to presume upon God. Number one, we presume that God will give us life. We presume that God will give us life. Something important to think about at the start of a new year. Consider the importance of these Christians' words. Today or tomorrow, we will go, we will spend a year there. These Christians were assuming that we're just we're guaranteed that we're going to be here tomorrow or a year from now. And maybe we'll leave today, maybe we'll leave tomorrow, maybe a year from now. It doesn't matter, we've got time. That's a kind of presumption the Scriptures warn us against. Consider Psalm 39, verse 4. This is a prayer, one that we would do well to emulate. Psalm 39, verse 4, the psalmist prays, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, You have made my days but a few handbreadths And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands before you as mere breath. James picks up on that language, a vapor. You think about a cold morning and how quickly you exhale and you see your breath for a second and the next second it's gone. Or consider Job. That was the psalmist. Job is a man to learn perspective on life. As you read through the book of Job, he begins by describing the the, the length of his life as days plural. And as the book goes on, he begins to describe the days of his life as a singular day. And then he describes it as his life as a runner. And the, the imagery is like that of a marathon. If you've ever stood on the sideline of a marathon uh, in which you, you see the runners approaching, maybe for just a minute or two, and as soon as they're past you, they're gone, and it's a new group of people. That, that's the, the picture that's used there of how fleeting Job's life was and how fleeting his days were. And these people, these Christians, have forgotten their life is like a vapor. And very often the Scriptures warn us about the man who is cut off in the midst of his pursuits. You think of the parable of the rich fool in Luke's Gospel. A prime example of this. Uh, the rich fool who did very well in business, had stored up for himself many riches, and he, he says to himself, this is what I'll do. He says, I, I will tear down my current barns 
And I will build in their place bigger barns in order to store my bounty. And once I've done that, then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But who didn't the rich fool consider? He didn't consider God who says to him that very night, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. That's some Christian, brothers and sisters, that's something for us to sincerely take to heart. We are not guaranteed our 80 years. For some of us, our more of our life may be over than we even realize. And it's very sobering. Every time we enter into a new year, and as that number on the calendar changes, one of these years, that's going to be the year that lands on our tombstone. One of these years, that's going to be the last time we enter into a new year. Young people, listen to me. I have a particular burden for you. I'm not as young as I used to be. It seems like when I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, it felt like the whole world, I had my whole life ahead of me. And as you get older, it has a way of teaching you that life goes by really fast, especially as you have children and other things happen. I know the temptation when you're young to just assume I have time. And, And you just assume that it's guaranteed to me that I can see the world, I'll get married, I'll go to college, I'll settle down, I'll have children, and then I'll get serious about maybe trusting the Lord and following the Lord and obeying the Lord. Guys, listen to James. You're not promised any of those things. Just as adults aren't promised their 80 years, children aren't promised their 80 years. The day to consider whether you're going to follow the Lord is today. Right? Just like Joshua said to Israel, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Children, choose this day and let it be the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the life worth living. A life from a young age following the Lord, pleasing the Lord, spending and being spent in the service of the Lord. You will find as you get older, the things of this world are fleeting. They are passing like a vapor because verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But young people... Follow the Lord from your young age. That's the first thing that we presume. We presume that the Lord will give us life. Secondly, we presume that we're the masters of our own life. We presume that we're the masters of our own life. So not only do we presume that we're going to be here tomorrow, but we have a certainty sometimes, like these Christians, they are, notice, declaring exactly what they will do tomorrow. Verse 13, we will go and spend a year there. We'll trade and we'll get gain. Right? They have it all figured out. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Exactly how it's going to go. That's exactly what Calvin thought. Right? Calvin honestly thought, I'm just going to sneak back into France, quick visit, come right back, continue my quiet life as a scholar. Right? And yet Calvin forgot that God can raise up armies and start wars in order to get his man off of the path that he was going and get him to Geneva. We have no idea the drastic turns our life might take in the next year or the next two, three, five years. And again, as I already mentioned, you probably some of you have experienced that this last year. You you had family goals, you had church goals, ministry goals, work goals... And God absolutely turned your goals on their head and He taught you His goals instead. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. Christian, how often, honestly, do we operate out of the assumption without even giving thought to God that our choice and our plan is just the ultimate deciding factor of how things are going to go? And... We just assume we've got it on our calendar. This is how it's going to go. We've got it all worked out. That's exactly how it's going to go. So often without even a single thought to the providence of God. A good thermometer on how to gauge how humble we are and how submitted we actually are to God's will is how much do I groan 
and complain and grumble when my will clashes with the will of God. Right? Grumbling, complaining reveals a heart that has forgotten that God is in heaven who does what He pleases and whatever He wills is wise and good. Thirdly, we presume that worldly success is God's will for us. So we not only presume that God will give us life, we not only presume that God that we are the masters of our own life, but we often presume that worldly success and prosperity is God's will. Notice verse 13. They say that they will go into such and such a place, they will trade and they will what? Make profit or get gain. They just assume this is going to go well for us. Our, Our earthly pleasures and desires are going to be fulfilled in these things. And brothers and sisters, that's an exhortation to us. We too often assume that profit and prosperity in this life and God's will for us must certainly be one and the same. And it's amazing how we can subtly, even though we abhor the prosperity gospel, we speak against the prosperity gospel, yet subtly and practically we can imbibe a form of it when we just assume that God's will and my prosperity must be one and the same. I mean, we can hardly conceive at times that it would be God's will for us that we not get what we want. Even though the Bible is filled more often than not with saints who suffered and endured hardship in this life. You know, it's it's an amazing thing how much our prayers reveal about our hearts and reveal our views of success. It's convicting for me when I think about how, how rarely... I come to God with something, with loose, a loose grip, just holding it loosely, praying, Lord, Lord, reveal to me and show me and give me discernment on what it is I should be doing. How often that, or how seldom that happens, and yet how often, on the other hand, I find myself already having made up my mind of what I want to happen and bringing it to the Lord, asking for Him to bless what I've already decided to do. There's a world of difference between those those two types of prayers. One of those prayers brings to God what I in my own wisdom have already determined is right and basically says, Lord, now would would you just stamp this for me? But the other comes to God humbly with loose hands, a loose grip, praying, Lord, have your own way. Lord, show me what is good for me and cause me to submit to what is good for me. That's how subtle our presumptuous attitudes can be. We we can often think that because we're praying, it must mean that we are submitted to God, that we're walking in humility, but that's not necessarily true. James has just scolded these same Christians earlier in this chapter in verse 3 because they were praying, but they were praying in such a way that they were asking God for things in order to commit spiritual adultery on Him. Just because we're praying doesn't mean that we have a humble disposition of submission to God. We might just be coming to God and using Him as our yes man for what we really want to do. Well, that's something of what we must not say as we plan this coming year. Let's turn secondly what we ought to say. What we ought to say positively. We've seen something of these Christians and we we are guilty along with them of their presumption, different ways we presume upon God, and how James categorizes that as arrogance and boasting and evil. Let's consider now the positive command. What ought we to say as we think about our future? Verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. Those words, Christian, are the antidote to a self-sufficient, self-dependent, arrogant approach to God and His will. Those words, if the Lord wills, have become a precious saying to God's people throughout the ages. And it is a very, very precious saying. Something that has significant, or should have significant meaning to God's people. But, James is not after here merely a religious tradition in which we 
just make sure whenever we talk about the future or we say we will do something that we just always remember to tack on the words, well, if the Lord wills. Okay. That's not what James is after. He's after a heart disposition, not a mere repetition of words. Right? There, there's nothing magic about that phrase. That phrase might mean something very significant and it might be empty words that mean nothing at all to us. And the difference depends on the disposition of our heart. And Christian, my prayer is that we would be a congregation that increasingly grows in our maturity and in our belief that God is good, God does all things well, that He is wise, and whenever His will is contrary and runs contrary to our wills, that we would grow in greater maturity, that we would more quickly say, not our will, but God's will be done. That, that should be the banner. The Lord Jesus is our example. That should be the banner over all of us in every area of our life, no matter what stage of life we are in. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Elderly saints, as you plan out and think through your latter years, it should be done realizing if the Lord wills. Young people, as you think through education and career and marriage and family and all of these things, all of it should be held loosely recognizing only if the Lord wills. Christian, for all of us, young and old, a lot can change in a very short amount of time. I, the Lord can drastically change what you think the direction of your life is going to be in a very short amount of, of time. I look back on my life when I was converted 14 or so years ago, and I've said it before, I've joked about it before, if you knew me before I was a Christian and you knew what my desires were and my, what the direction of my life was, you would join me in praising God that He doesn't give us what we want and what we desire, but He gives us what we need and what is good for us. And so I want to close with three applications of how to cultivate hearts that have this attitude of if the Lord wills. Okay? This kind of attitude of humility before God and submission to God. Three applications. Number one, Christian, contemplate often the brevity of your own life. I say that to the, the older person. I say that to the young person. Contemplate the brevity of your own life. Okay. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking that at the beginning of a new year, that kind of an application just sounds morbid and a wet blanket on what you thought was going to be a great, prosperous new year, I would submit to you that that's an indication that you are more influenced by the American dream than you are biblical wisdom. Look up. Here's an assignment. I've given it in years past. I'll give it again. There's plenty of new people who haven't been given this challenge. Look up in your treasury of Scripture knowledge. Okay, that's a Bible study tool if you're not familiar with it. If you don't have it, you can find it free online. Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, one of the greatest tools for Bible study. You look up a verse and it gives you all of the related verses, or at least most of the related verses on that topic. Okay? Look up in your Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, James 4.14. And it will give you all, or at least most, of the related verses that speak of the brevity of life. And the amazing thing is that what you will find is you will find that virtually all of our biblical heroes, Old Testament saints, the psalmist and others that we look up to as heroes, they all have this in common. They thought deeply and often and realistically about the brevity of their own life and the coming day of their own death. Psalm 90, verse 12. Another prayer. I mentioned Psalm 34. Psalm 90. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Nothing puts life in perspective like remembering that this life is short and that it will soon be past. That's true whether you live to be 30 or whether you live to be 90. This life is a vapor. The only way we will navigate this life, however many days God has ordained for us, in a way that is wise and submitted to the will of God is if we learn how brief our life actually is. And Christian, that puts everything into perspective for us. 
It puts prosperity into perspective and it puts adversity into perspective. Because let's say this past year and maybe this coming year, you're going to be, maybe you'll have a year of prosperity and you'll be tempted to cling to those things and to find your life in those things and to find your life in stature or whatever this world has to offer you. Well, remembering the brevity of life helps us not to do that. Because it reminds us of examples like Luke, the rich, uh, Luke 12 and the rich fool. And it reminds us that our time is short and perhaps shorter than we know and nothing we store up in this life, whether it be reputation or possessions, none of it is coming with me to commend me to God. And therefore, I can hold it loosely and I don't have to find my life and identity in these things. Or perhaps, on the other hand, the other spectrum, perhaps God in His providence is going to bring you affliction, bring you hardship, and it will tempt you to despair and to cry out, Lord, how long will Your hand, Your heavy hand of affliction be upon Me? Well, again, this same thing helps us. Because when we remember the brevity of life, it reminds us that we are closer now than we have ever been to the joys of bliss in heaven and being with Christ. This suffering, even if it lasts decades, that is not long compared to eternity. The frequent contemplation of our short time on earth gives us that freedom to hold everything in life loosely, whether prosperity or adversity, because I know even in prosperity, it's not coming with me, and in adversity, I'm very soon going to leave it all behind. Let us learn to say, not my will, but the Lord's will be done. Let us learn from the brevity of life to say that, Lord, whatever You have ordained for my life, whether it be good or bad, prosperity or adversity, whatever conforms me to Christ, and whatever causes me to serve Him more faithfully, that is what's most important. Whether I have one more day, whether I have 60 more years, the most important thing is that I spend that time trusting and obeying Christ and walking with Him. Second thing, second application, learn to trust God's wisdom above your own wisdom. Learn to trust God's wisdom above your own. Implicit in this section, James doesn't explicitly say it, but it's implicit here. James is assuming that God has every right to overthrow the Christian's plans. And as I've already mentioned, this happened last year. This will happen again this year. To some extent, and for some of us probably to a great extent, the days that are coming for us are going to turn out very, very differently than what we had hoped or what we had planned. And the question for us, that, that's just a fact. We can't do anything about that. God's decree is what He has decreed and it will unfold in His providence. The question for us is how will we respond to God's providence? How will we react to God's providence? Will it be with an attitude of, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done, or will it be with an arrogant attitude like James condemns here of kicking against the providence of God? Psalm 131. You can turn there if you're, if you're quick. Psalm 131. Only three verses worthy of every Christian's memorization. And it's not long, so you can do it. We've got no excuse for not memorizing three verses. Psalm 131. He prays, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What that psalm is teaching us, what the psalmist has learned there, is the beginning, he's telling us that there was a time, it's implied, when he used to 
occupy him, his, himself with things too lofty. I think what that means is he used to try to peer into the decree of God and the providence of God. And why, Lord? And there was a time when, like a little infant, he would kick and scream, so to speak, against God his Father for why, asking why God was not giving him the thing that he desired. And if you've, most of us have been around a child being weaned, you know that if, to say the least, they're not happy, right? Um, why are they not happy? Because they don't understand. They have no category for why their mother is suddenly withholding from them the very thing that brought them comfort. And the psalmist is saying that's how we can often respond to God's wisdom in our lives and His providence. And we can reply against God, our Creator, why did you give me what I didn't want? And why did you withhold from me the very thing I asked for? And we, in those statements, demonstrate that we think that we, the child, know better than our Father in Heaven. But the psalmist says here he has learned. He has calmed and quieted his soul before God like a weaned child. Notice what the psalm doesn't say. It doesn't say that he calmed his spirit because God explained everything to him. Or suddenly gave him the thing he wanted. Or took away what he didn't want. But rather, just like a mother can't explain to her child why she's doing what she's doing, he has calmed his spirit because he's come to trust more in the goodness of God and in the character of God and in the wisdom of God. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen without effort. We so often, God brings us trials. He brings us opportunities to learn these lessons. And we just coast through them without thinking that God is teaching me something here. He's giving this to me. My Father from heaven has handpicked this for me to train me. To train me in humility more than I've been trained in the past. And brothers and sisters, these things don't happen without effort. They don't happen without trial. And it may be that God has ordained some of these very trying circumstances for us precisely to grow us in this kind of childlike attitude. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, I don't know what God has in store in His providence for you in these coming years, or coming year, what He has for me. But Christian, if the Lord has afflictions in store for you, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Lean into the trial. Don't respond in unbelief, arrogance, complaining, grumbling, but rather receive them from God's hand and lean into them with an intention to actually learn to trust God more deeply. That brings us to the third application as we come to a close. Thirdly, Learn that God has a different definition of gain or profit than we do. Learn that God has a different definition of gain or profit than we do. I mentioned when we were in our first point about ways we're presumptuous that we often just assume that God must have in store for us that things are going to go well for us. And my point is, was obviously to say that that's not always what God has for us. It's not always His will that we become rich. And that's true with the kind of wealth and profit these Christians were assuming they were going to make. But the glorious truth of the Gospel is that if you're a Christian this morning and you're in Christ, and you know God is your Father, you can have absolute confidence that God in everything, every single detail of your life, is working things out for your eternal profit and your eternal gain. What we so often view as detours in our lives, as tragedies in our lives, are often the richest seasons of spiritual growth for God's people. If you read Christian biography, you will soon discover that all of our heroes knew what it was to experience affliction and suffer under the discipline of, of God. And how they, through that discipline and affliction, came to realize that God Himself 
And knowing God more deeply and more sincerely is greater than all of the things the Lord chose to take away from me. God often chooses to withhold from us the very things we want so that He can give us what we need for our everlasting good. And I know we've all heard that before, especially in a Reformed context. Those things, they can become cliché, and we just toss these truths around like they're just commonplace. But they shouldn't be commonplace. We have precious promises, like nuggets of gold given to us in the Scriptures, that promise every believer that all things, everything works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Everything. Evil that befalls you, suffering that befalls you, sin that befalls you, even your own sin that leads to consequences, everything is being worked according to the counsel of the all-wise God for the eternal good and glory of the children of God. And Christian, our prayer this beginning of this new year should be that we would, as a congregation and individually and in our families, become more impressed with that reality. That God will complete the work that He has begun. That God can be trusted in His wisdom Just like he taught the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is second to the Lord Jesus, probably the supreme example of this kind of submission to God's will. As he was beaten again and again, persecuted, chased from city to city, experienced floods, shipwreck, you name it, false brethren, danger on the road, danger at sea. And in Philippians 1, for one example, he can, from a Roman prison, not knowing whether... His meeting with Caesar is going to lead to his death or whether he's going to be released. He can say to those Christians he was writing to at Philippi that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As he's wrestling with whether it would be better to go on living for their sake or to just have this all be over and to go into the presence of Christ, he could honestly say that either way, if I live it is Christ, and if I die, it is gain. That's the same exact word James uses here for profit. If to die, which is to lose by definition everything this world has to offer you, if to die is gain for the Christian, then certainly sufferings that come short of death are also working gain for the Christian. They are conforming us to the image of Christ They are growing us more deeply in our communion with God, in our dependence upon God. They are weaning us from this world so that we would truly, in God, in Christ, find in Him our all in all. Brothers and sisters, there is not one of us who sits here who ought not to at least be pricked in our conscience about our presumption. Uh, presumption. None of us lives in perfect obedience to the will of God and perfectly submits to God's will for us. We have failed this last year. We will sadly grieve God by failing again this year. By not receiving with gratitude everything He sends to us. And that's sin. And we're guilty of that. And we should confess that to God But the glory of the Gospel is that God sent One, His Son, who did always, every moment, perfectly submit Himself to the will of His Father. Saying even to the point of obedience unto death and the shameful death of the cross, Father, not My will, but Your will be done. And He did it so that He could then take away our sin and our unrighteousness, and to take away the guilt of our real presumption and arrogance towards God so that we might receive pardon and reconciliation with God. And so Christian, as we look forward to a new year, let us not only heed the exhortation James gives us to live this way, but let us give thanks to God for Christ 
because it is only because of His perfect obedience that we are forgiven of our failure to do this. And it is only because Christ sanctified Himself, submitting Himself to His Father, that we now, by the power of His Spirit, can obey God and can trust God and say to God, not my will, but Your will be done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray. We confess our sins to You. We pray that You would prick us more in our conscience. There are so many sins that we are not even aware of. So many sins that we just consider to be small offenses. And yet, Father, You know every one of them. And yet You have been so gracious to forgive us for every one of them in Your Son. That our transgressions have been nailed to Him. The Lamb who was led to the slaughter. Who willingly laid down His life and was silent just as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not His mouth for our sakes. He submitted Himself to You, Father, to wash away all of our sin of failing to do so. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that through Him we have been brought from a state of enmity and alienation into a state of peace with God that we now relate to You, Father, as Father. As our Father who loves us. A love from which flowed Your gift of Your Son for our sakes, that we should not be lost, but that we should dwell with You for eternity. Help us, Father, we pray. Write Your Word upon us. Cause Your Spirit to bring Your Word to our remembrance. Keep us from arrogance and pride. Cause us to submit to Your will. Cause us to be able to have an assurance such that even if You take away things from us, even when You bring affliction to us, that we would receive it with joy. That we would count trials as a joyful thing because it is You perfecting Your people. Bringing us to maturity. Father, draw near to us as we come to the Lord's table now. We pray that You would draw near to us, that Your Son would be precious to us, that He would be our all in all. We pray that we would come with a right stature of heart, believing the Gospel, receiving from Christ His grace. Father, we pray that You'd be with us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.